0: This is the podcast Queer Margins, and I'm Riz T. Matthews. Queer Margins talks to those in the LGBTQ plus community who are rarely heard from. And in the first series, Old Queens, I'm talking to older queer people about their experiences. And this is episode 13, Mark.
1: It was challenging sometimes. It was difficult to live in sometimes because you know, the gays can be the gays, especially if you're a small, tiny community. So it could be bitchy, it could be gossipy. And I was also kind of dealing with my HIV diagnosis at the time, so it was there was lots going on, but it was family. And that was the most important thing, it was a family. People knew each other and not like, you know, family, you can leave your front door open, <laughs> they would steal your boyfriend. <laughs> um, but it was rich. You know, there was there was a big life that we created.
0: I met Mark at an event at the Guildhall thrown by the organisation Aid Since the 80s. Jonathan Blake introduced us both and suggested I talk to Mark for the series. And so, a few weeks later, I went to Mark's house in Brixton to chat to him. He lives just across the garden from Jonathan, and when I got there, I was greeted by a very excited dog and a cup of tea. We spoke about Mark's upbringing in Brixton, his HIV diagnosis and his work as co-editor of Blackout UK, as well as a lot more. So here's Mark.
1: I realised that it was kind of difference probably when I was probably about seven or eight. And um, it wasn't difference in me. I mean, there was a shop in Brixton where I live, a well-known shoe shop, and there was a guy that worked in there and he was really flamboyant and this is mid 70s. Um, and really fey, and really... I would now see as quite camp and effeminate, and stood out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think my mum kind of pointed out that he was the gay guy. And so this was about 76, 77. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when I realised that there was kind of... There were some people that were this, and some people were that. And I didn't kind of connect it to sexual preference. I just knew that there was difference. There were some guys that were this, and there were some guys that were that. When
0: did you start thinking about the fact that you were gay
1: then? I mean, I think I knew... I mean, an early. I mean, I recognised from a really, really early age that I liked boys, you know, and was um, not shy about experimenting with boys, yeah. you know. Um, didn't put it down to you know sexual identity or anything like that. And I was from a really, really early age, you know. You, know, you show me yours, I show you mine, and I preferred doing that with boys than I did with little girls. Oh. Um, and I think it was probably in my early teens that I really started to form a language within myself about being gay. And again, this is like the early 80s. So the notion of gay was a real kind of word. It wasn't queer. It was, you know, gay kind of homosexual. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I liked boys. And it was at secondary school. Because I knew that I liked boys physically. And that was never an issue for me. Never questioned it, never, never didn't feel repulsed by it or don't want to be this way. But I think when I at the age of 13, 14, when I started to have like emotional crushes on boys.
0: You started having emotional crushes mm. on guys when you were in your teens mm. and then where did you progress from then?
1: So I think I was about, I was 15 and I had that big jolt crush on a boy at school mm. and really kind of you know couldn't get on my head constantly thought about him wanted to dress like him and funny because he wasn't older than me he was actually a year younger than me but he was like one of the coolest kids in school um and it just did my brain in and, and i couldn't couldn't cope with it you know it was that real kind of like oh my god i'm gonna go crazy yeah it was, that was it, it was yeah. all consuming you know and i remember i, I kept a diary you know mm-hmm. as a teenage boy i was kind of that kid um and i remember kind of saying to myself okay well you know i put that to one side, and This was the only time I'd wish I wasn't what I was because I just didn't know what to to do or how to cope with it. And I was really lucky. I had an amazing head of year who I was really, really close to, really close to. She really took me under her wing because I Mm. think she saw that I went to quite a rough boys' comprehensive school in South London and I was never camp. I was never that kid that got picked on and I could look after myself but I think she sensed that I was still quite a special kid. And I told her. Really? Yeah. So she was the first person I told? She was the first person I told. And what it was, and I think what it was, and this is, I mean, you know, some people get this, some people won't. I was reading a book called, which is bizarre, I was reading a book called The Profession of Violence, <laughs> which is the story of the Cray Twins, right? The two <laughs> The two gangsters. And... They were from East London, I was from South London. They were mm. working class, I was working class. They were they were white working class, I was black working class. Um, but I came from quite a tough family. And one of the Craig twins was gay, yeah. right? Ronnie, I'm sure Ronnie was yeah. gay. And I read this and I was like, well, damn, if Ronnie can be gay and it's okay, then I can be. And I remember a couple of days later speaking to my head of the and saying, I think I'm gay. And she gave me a number for Switchboard. And I think she gave me a number for another group, which... And I had these phone numbers. She's like, you know, if you ever need to talk to anybody. So that, that, that's where I first came out, to my oh end of year. She
0: seems really switched off in a way that I think a lot of people
1: might not be. I I mean, I, you know, I, I make no joke. I'm an incredibly lucky man in terms of the support that I got. And because once I told her, I then told um, to my... I, I moved in a really small circle of friends at school. Yeah. And I told my best mate, and he was like, I knew there was something up with you," Oh, my God. But he was really cool. And then my other best mate was the star footballer at school. So, you know, at school, you've always got the one jock. And he was the star footballer. He went on to be a professional footballer, and he was my best mate. And I told him. And he was, I mean, unbelievably cool about it. Young black guy from South London, exactly the same as me. And he was like, you're my mate. I love you. The narrative, particularly around young black gay men, is that our experiences are always, always terrible. That we come from really homophobic families. And, and and that's absolutely a truth for a lot of people. But I also think it's important that people hear stories where people have been accepted, where family or close friends have been really cool, You know, where school teachers have been supportive, because that might encourage other people to be supportive, you know, or to find, I always say, you know, there's always one person that's going to love you and accept you. You need to find that person, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of what I did.
0: You mentioned family. How did your parents take it when you told them? What did you tell
1: them? Yeah, I did did tell them. I told my mum pretty soon after I told my head of year. Well, actually, I didn't tell my mum. She kind of found out. She found those numbers. (laughs) I'd gone out.
0: Whenever someone says they write a diary or something, I'm like,
1: oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. But I'd gone out one night right. uh, with my first boyfriend and stayed out all night. And she was really worried. And my mum was really cool and she was really worried about it. And she searched my wardrobe and she found the numbers for switchboard and blah, 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 blah. But she didn't confront me. Okay. She didn't say to me, what's all this? And I knew that she'd found them. So I was like, oh, God, she's found oh, them. What am I going to do? That's a bit worse in a way, isn't it? it yeah. Isn't it, though? <laughs> But I, I, I was always raised never to lie to my parents. You know, whatever the worst is, don't lie to us. That's the worst thing you can do. And I felt in my truth, you know, I and I remember telling my mum, I'm gay. And I didn't say I think I'm gay. I didn't say this is a phase. I was like, I'm gay. And for her, she was a social worker and so she was quite in tune. And the first thing was, I think you need to talk to someone. A little bit was, I think it's a phase. Yeah. And a little bit was she was worried. About my personal safety, she was worried about exploitation. she knew that i was I was just turned sixteen. She knew that this was a time where you know young men are always vulnerable in our community or potentially you know for exploitation and yes, she had a kind of stereotypical view that some older man was going to take me and exploit me, but there is also that is also partly a reality but she wasn't worried about my identity it wasn't like, oh my God, this is something wrong. We need to pray this away. It was like, are you sure? I don't want people to exploit you. And then she was also really worried about my dad, who right. was Jamaican and held deeply homophobic views. Um, and she was really worried about my safety, that if he found out, I might be made homeless. What would she do? You know, there might be violence and all that kind of thing. Surprisingly, my dad did find out about five years later. That's quite a time. Well, we, we kind of left. I'd left home by then. My mum had left my dad by then. Um, but he found out in a pub. How <laughs> get Well, because my, my it's dad. You a diary, Yeah, I left my diary. <laughs> yeah, my diary. Well, <laughs> my dad was a bit of a loud mouth. and my mum had told some friends in Brixton and, you know, African Caribbean, Jamaican. You know, I was born and raised in Brixton, you know, so my dad has friends and my mum has friends there. It's a really kind of close a small community, and my mama told a friend, hmm. and then she told a friend, and blah, 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 and then my dad was in a pub one night, and he was running up his mouth, and being generally really homophobic, and this is like, you know, this is like a real kind of gay dream, right, um, you couldn't make it other, he was being like, generally really homophobic, and then somebody turned and was like, but your son's a batty boy. Oh, fuck. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> yeah, so that was my coming out story to my dad. But surprisingly, after we got into an altercation and a fight with the guy, um, he checked on me, called me up, and uh, told me that he told my mum that he'd heard this story and he needs to see me. And My mum was like, "Your dad's coming," and uh, but he was really cool. Oh, he was really really cool. He, he was he was as cool as a. Jamaican man born in the early 50s with limited education, limited access to homosexuality and gayness that had been brought up in a particular world was. And for me, for my dad, the most important thing was I was his son. Mm. That's That's what came first and foremost. You're my son, I love you. And I think the reason why my dad was also accepting was because I stood in my truth. I was like, yes, it's true. I make no apologies about it. It's who I am. I'm 21. I live on my own. And what? And I think for him, it was like, okay, what can I do? I don't think, I I don't think my dad, my dad died in, when I was 25. But I don't think he ever was, you know, truly accepting but I was his son, and that was the most important mm-hmm. thing. So, did you?
0: Would you talk to him about boyfriends? Did he ever meet any boyfriends or like
1: that? No, I mean he met a boyfriend, but that was through a family function that we were at. But no, I mean, but I don't think if I'd had a relationship and I was straight, I would have sat down and spoke to my dad about right. you know yeah, yeah. women. The, like, yeah. It wasn't that kind of relationship, and he wasn't that kind of man. So um, it wasn't to do with homophobia. Why we didn't talk? It's just the way that some men are. Yeah. You know, and yeah. we're African-Caribbean, we're Jamaican, you know, there's certain things that we do, certain things that we don't do. Mm-hmm. So what was it like in your 20s being black, gay? I, felt, I mean, I quickly, relatively quickly, found my tribe mm-hmm. and found my community, which was a black, gay, male community in 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 london it was relatively small it was second generation african and caribbean so we were the children of the windrush generation right um and it was challenging sometimes it was difficult to live in sometimes because you know the gays could be the gays especially if you're small tight community um so it could be bitchy it could be gossipy it could be you know, and I was also kind of dealing with my HIV diagnosis at the time, so it was there was lots going on, but it was family, it, and that was the most important thing. It Was a family people knew each other, and not like you know, it wasn't like family like you leave your front door open, they would steal your boyfriend. Um, but it it was it was rich, you know. There was a, there was a big life that we created, which sat outside of what was then. A you know a white white gay community it was very similar to it is now you know the, the yeah. need to create spaces for men of color and it, and it really was to use the language of 2019 it really was overwhelmingly cisgendered men who kind of made up the community that I moved in it was never named as such we were black gay men that was it yeah
0: how did you find your tribe
1: then through lovers usually through. Boyfriends, um, then you know, kind of from there, kind of made friends with people that I went out with. You know, there'd be the gay scene in London was obviously a lot smaller than it is now, and kind of very binary. Mm. You know, there were there were fewer clubs, fewer bars, Soho, and it really kicked off as much as it didn't take the late 90s. Um, But we kind of found the tribe through an underground scene of house parties. Um, One or two clubs that catered to people of colour, you know, played the music that we liked, played the music that we would hear elsewhere, you know, that wasn't played on the radio, that wasn't high energy or was a different type of disco. Mm -hmm. So we kind of did that. But in the late, in the early 90s, That kind of morphed and spread out a bit, you know.
0: I imagine that being gay unites, or at least being like LGBT unites, like people, but then I think that's because I'm like white and gay, Mm. and I think lesbians don't feel that so much, trans people don't feel that so much, but I think people who aren't white don't feel that so much. Do you think that that's that's the case, or did you feel like that was the case when you were like in that group?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that is the case. I mean, we're, we're under this impression that because we're queer. Mm -hmm. that we're all of a sudden united and all of the crap that goes on outside in the world and all of the influences are suddenly forgotten when Mm -hmm. we stepped into that rainbow bubble. Absolute bull, Mm -hmm. right? Absolute bull. Because we bring everything that we had before into that space. So as, you know, for white people, for white gay men, you are raised in a white supremacist racist culture you know it's not your fault I mean you just are because of you become because you because you are a homosexual because you are a gay man or a queer man doesn't automatically go oh I've forgotten about that and also doesn't mean that you start becoming much more sensitive to it so when we had much more binary community of gay men and queer and lesbian women there were divides because men were misogynistic and and sexist. Mm. I've seen this impact around race as well. So when we now in 2019 we see, and it's not just cis men, but when we see our community being transphobic, that's because society's transphobic.
0: So what was your life like in your twenties then? What was it, what was your day-to-day life
1: then? It was pretty cool. I mean I was I turned 21 in 1990. I'd left home, I was you know, living on my own in the heart of London for about four or five years, I went to the States for a bit, and I came back, and I, I you know, I met a great guy, and I felt in my mid twenties that um, I've done it now. I've partied, I've gone out, and I've drunk and I've travelled. Now I just want to settle down and have a, a lovely boyfriend. And this is why gay marriage is dangerous. At twenty five, I would have got married, and I would have been trapped. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm pointing my finger and <laughs> joking, but I mean, I probably would have done. Um, but I yeah, I, I settled down, got a dog, got a flat, got a boyfriend, and. You know, uh, my sister had kids, so it was that kind of nesting yeah, stage. It, well, it was really important as well because i you know, I'd gone from, you know, being kind of wild in my early 20s and, you know, partying and just enjoying doing shit that 21, 22, 23-year-olds should do. Mm-hmm. And I got to 26 and I was like, okay, well, now one settles down and becomes like a normal grown-up person. Mm-hmm. How I hit 30.
0: <laughs> okay, and
1: then my all i literally just went crazy. <laughs> I watched, I watched queer. I split up with my boyfriend. I watched Queer as Folk, and I was like, "That's who I want to be. I want to be Stuart Allen Jones." <laughs> and I was for, it? I, yeah, I was <laughs> for a good four years, three four years. Yeah, I just went to party. I did, <laughs> you know, I, and and the London club scene was changing as well. Mm-hmm. It was becoming, it was much more connected to Europe. It was getting bigger. There were super clubs in London. Mm. And so it had gone, the queer scene in London had gone for, it started to grow up. It had gone from being quite underground and a little bit scuzzy. Mm. We were starting to come out of the dark days of the epidemic, you know, so people weren't dying, people were living. And this crowd was just like picking up. And we were getting lots of guys coming in from Europe. Mm. We were getting lots of. Black guys who were coming in from West Africa and from the Caribbean. And the scene started to get kind of a new lease of life a little bit.
0: So you spoke about um, HIV earlier. When did you get diagnosed?
1: I was diagnosed when I was 17 in 1986. Yeah, it was a year after I came out.
0: That's, I mean,
1: not a great start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not a great (laughs) start.
0: When you were telling people that you were gay, you also telling people that you had HIV?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I kept that. I kept my HIV very much, not to myself, one, I told my family and I got, you know, great support there and I told one or two people that I considered to be friends at the time and as I said earlier, you know, the black gay scene was very, very small Mm. in the 80s and 90s and before you knew it, it slipped out and people knew Mm. and it was one of those rumour things for a really long time lots and lots of rooms lots of people so I'd meet somebody go on a date and they'd be like I've heard or two or three dates in somebody told me so yeah I spent a lot of time kind of managing that because I yeah was there anybody else in your circle who, who had hitchhiked? it was an interesting one I, I reflect on this a lot now no when what do you want? well what I reflect on now is that when I was diagnosed in the 80s at the height of the epidemic I for a good few years um, I'm talking probably at least 10 to 15 at least 10 years at least 10 years there was nobody in my close immediate circle that was living with HIV Mm. there were there were people that I would meet at service centres or drop-ins or groups that I went to for my own support but I had no close personal friends that were positive and I was in a black eight community as I've said flash forward to later post-2003, and onwards, I know more positive men in my circle and around me than I've ever known, ever known. Which says a lot about the fact that it's not as hidden, which is one, and also about the increase in diagnosis, which obviously we've seen drop, you know, from say 2003 to 2013, we were seeing record numbers of people being diagnosed with HIV. So I, the people that I knew that were in my circle, that were friends or were lovers, became bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: Being diagnosed at 17 then, at the height of the epidemic, that must have been
1: scary incredibly yeah it was frightening it left me really angry it left me really hurt There was that period of blaming somebody else you know um somebody else had given this to me you know so I had to deal with that that person then died or I can't say that person died because that's unfair because I'm not sure if it was that person that infected me I've done some math and I think it could well be but it may not be so, I was, yeah, I was angry, and I was angry at the world for a lot of the time, but I wasn't, I wasn't, all, I wasn't just angry about being positive. I was also angry about the way that my community had reacted mm-hmm. to it, you know, that here I was, this young kid who I thought should be getting support, but then people were gossiping about me, and that made me really, really angry, mm-hmm. you know, because it wasn't like a kind gossip. Yeah. It was a malicious, it was a cruel kind of stay away from that person type of gossip. So there was that, but it was also really frightening because you potentially could die. You know, you 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 would get the prognosis was you will get ill and you will get you will die. So I was all and not just die, but a shameful, embarrassing, horrible death. So I was always on the edge.
0: And did that change the way you lived?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um I was I was university bound. I was smart at school, at college. Um, I was meant to go to uni. Um I dropped out of college just before my A levels and party. It was there was what's the point? You know, what I mean I and the thing is that you know you hear lots of in, in the history of HIV, you know, you hear lots of narratives around, you know, people cashing in their pensions and you know they did I, I, I was 17, what pension? Yeah. I mean, I mean I didn't even start working yet. Um but it just thrust me forward in going into I'm gonna live now. And it was never conscious, it was just, I'm just going to live now, I'm going to live now. Um, I had opportunities to go and live in America, to study in America, and I turned them down. Because it would have meant disclosing my status, which was something I didn't feel confident or comfortable mm, yeah. doing. But what it did do was to move me in a direction of activism, okay. of making a difference.
0: Yeah. When do you think the living for now, when do you think that stopped?
1: I became less conscious of it in my in my late twenties mm-hmm. and I think probably you know that period of settling down mm. and also like when my nieces were born,
0: right, okay. which is
1: around 96, So that gives you something to kind of start thinking about. Um, and I hadn't got ill. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it was like I hadn't I hadn't got ill. So it was always like, yeah, you're going to be all right. Another, another year's gone by, you're going to be fine. You're going to yeah. be fine. But I never thought too far ahead. But I think it probably really, really went when the science started to prove it. When I started to see other people around me getting old, you know, and yeah. getting older and, you know, not dying, not getting ill. When treatment started to really work.
0: I just can't imagine being seventeen and having that news. Everybody else I've spoken to was in their thirties, maybe late twenties, mm. when they when they found out. Um, yeah, like being that young and having to dealing with just coming out and that kind of like freedom of that, and then all of a sudden you find out that it's be like that must be so tough.
1: It was. I mean, it was. And the older I get, and the further away that is, and when I see people who are not, you know who were in their early twenties, yeah. you know, or younger and how young they really, really are in the world. You know, your brain hasn't even fully formed yet. You know, your body's still developing, all these yeah. sorts of things. It it throws a curveball. I don't know if I've fully processed what happened mm. then. Yeah. Because I'm not that person. I mean, I'm that person who's like, yeah, come on, <laughs> let's just come on, let's just do it, let's yeah. just do it. And, you know, when I, you know, when I get round to it, I'll work all that out. <laughs> I'll, I'll work all that out. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's, yeah, seventeen is no age to be given. I think seventeen is no age to be given a diagnosis of any kind yeah. of condition. Yeah. To be given a condition, to be given to be diagnosed with a condition which which was then highly stigmatised, was potentially a death sentence. Which you know, I could have told my mum. My mum could have put me out. How did she take it? She was amazing. She was absolutely incredible. I didn't tell her when I first got te- I told test, I, I told her I was going for a test, mm-hmm. I, can't remember, I don't know why I told her I was going for a test, it was that thing of not lying, mm-hmm. but I did lie, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I said to her, it was, it was negative, but I was holding it for a really long time, and a really dear friend of mine said, well, you need to talk to her, you need to, and she was great, I mean, she she did all of the things that she, as she says now, I did all the things that I was meant to do, which I do all the things that a mum is meant to do, mm-hmm. um, which is to stand by her kids. And that's it, it's a no-brainer. I know it wasn't easy. I know now it was tough as hell for her to do all of that. Um, But she did it. So
0: how is, in a general way, how has HIV affected your life then?
1: I used to... For a long time, it affected my life in a really kind of negative way. In, in, I've been very lucky, first of all, that I've never been ill, I've never been hospitalized. I started medication 15 years after my diagnosis. Um, and that's because, my, one, because there was no medication available. I think it's important to say that I wasn't like a miracle. And also because um, I was really well. So I think that's really important. It's affected my life. And for a really long time, it really shaped me, made me really angry, as I have said before, and kind of really pissed with my communities that I, I exist in—black mm-hmm. gay communities, queer communities, whatever you want to name—really pissed and angry with them. With that, it's impacted in my life. but it has made me more generous. Um, It's—I always say that HIV has given me more than it ever took away. Oh, yeah, yeah. What way? I'm an act. I became an activist. Mm-hmm. I recognize the need for social justice across all aspects of life. HIV is an infection and a condition which is impacted by race, poverty, sexuality, gender identity, all of these things. And I think all of those things are fucking fascinating. They're fascinating to me. I've got to travel the world. I've met some of the most incredible, beautiful people on this journey. I found love. I have fallen out of love. I've had a wonderful life and experience because of my HIV. When I hear positive people say HIV doesn't define me, I'm like, well, lucky you, or more for you, because it defines me, and it has defined me.
0: Okay, so obviously I met you through Johnson Blake and he lives across the garden. He does. I'm just I'm struggling
1: to explain, like, the kind of setup. It's So we're, we're right now in the Brixton Housing Cooperative, and this is one of our many houses, buildings. But where we live right now, where Jonathan and I live, where we share a communal space, is the LGBTQ safe space. Not safe space, but the houses. Mm-hmm. So in this little kind of compound, you yeah. might want to call it, <laughs> there are about... Uh, 12, 18, I'm going to throw out like 24 flats that all back onto a garden, a huge shared space. Yeah. We are incredibly lucky. Yeah. And and we're lucky, I think, you know, historically it was a safe space because, you know, the world was crazy. Um, the world still is crazy. Mm. Um, but it, it's increasingly a safe space because we're an ageing generation of, of, of queers that live here, you know. So we cultivate this space and we look after it and we know that as we get older it's a safe community for us Mm -hmm. you know do you
0: feel obviously you partied quite a lot when you were younger are you still interested in going do you still go
1: out i don't go to gay spaces as much as i used to because i particularly like music i you know there's a certain kind of thing that happens when you hit 40 you're like oh i don't understand why are they so loud so there's, there's a little bit of I'm not really into the music that's kind of played in lots of gay spaces now. I do... I mean, I love to go out. I love dancing. You know, I've still got a lot of energy. And I, I, mean, I went to a big party in the Ministry of Sound the other week, which was really gay-friendly. And, you know, it was a ministry... It was a tri- uh, uh, fundraiser for Tennis Higgins Trust. So, you know, I, I love doing that. I love going now. Um... I don't feel the need or the urge because part of going out is about socialising and being with your friends and looking for boys mm. and that kind of thing, you know, let's face it. And I'm not really into that in the same way. I do wish that there were more spaces which catered for not an older crowd. I don't want to be in a in a room just for like 50, 60, 70 year olds, right? Mm-hmm. But it was much more accommodating to to the diversity. Difference that there is, I get why it's not. Young people like young people, and that's cool, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and also because, and we don't talk about this a lot, we are a sexualized community, mm-hmm. and there's always this notion where you're after me, or I'm after you, right? So as an older man being in particular spaces, I'm a, I'm either seen as a predator, or or something. There's always something. I couldn't just yeah. be there.
0: Do you, would you, do you have anything to say to
1: younger people, younger queer people? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about advice, I, I, maybe it's advice or pointers, mm-hmm. is know your history. We have an incredible, rich and fabulous, fun history as queer people in this country, and globally, but particularly in this country, mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that you know it. And it always, and it, it's not just a complaint from older queer people. There's a complaint across the world around older people going, young people, know your history. Just, just, just Google it. You have all this information. And I've never known anything like it because I was always in touch with my queer history. Yeah. I was always in touch with my queer tropes or the things which informed who I was as a gay man. Always knew that, and was always interested, inquisitive about it. And I find there's a real lack of being inquisitive about that. There's this real thing like, I'm the first person to do this. You know, I put out this today because I'm the first queer person to done it. It's really tiresome because you're not, babe. You know what I mean? And if you actually went, actually, I'm just improving on this or this. Oh wow, that's really fascinating. You've done your research. I I think that there's that. Is know that history because it's rich and it's fabulous and it's fun. I think there is something around I can't tell younger queer people to connect with older people because they're difficult, we're, we're difficult to find, but you know there's all that stuff and it gets better and all the rest of it, but um, live, you know what I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's difficult because I feel like a young person still myself, but just live it.
0: I'm really glad I met Mark and got the chance to talk to him for the series. He's a really interesting and friendly man with a great laugh. If you want to find out more about Mark's work, then head to his Twitter account, which is at markt01. So that's M A R C T 01, where you'll find links to a lot of really important resources. It was a pleasure talking to Mark, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. If you did like the episode, then please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're getting this, and follow on social media by searching for queer margins. Thanks a lot for listening.